0: Well, this is another election-related podcast. This might be my last swing at this ball. As many of you know, I've come out strongly against Donald Trump, and the only way to really do this is to support Hillary Clinton. But what I want to do in this podcast is attempt to reach those of you who view any criticism of Trump as partisan. So I'm going to spend a long time here speaking very critically about the lesser evil, Hillary Clinton about both Clintons, in fact, because they come as a pair. And I've enlisted Andrew Sullivan to help me in this cause because he certainly knows what's wrong with both Clintons. Most of you know him, of course. Andrew has been a very prominent journalist and editor. He ran the New Republic for many years, and he's written for more or less everybody. He's a frequent political commentator, and the fact that gay marriage is now legal in this country is largely the result of his work. He was also one of the first prominent bloggers, which he did for 15 years at the Daily Dish. He is now a contributing editor at New York Magazine and writes great long form pieces there. He's published several books, including The Conservative Soul, which I link to on my website. And what we attempt to do in this podcast is sympathize with those of you who hate the Clintons and don't want to see them return to the White House. And we do this for a good long while. I'm worried that if You only listen to half of this podcast. You'll go vote for Trump. I don't think you've heard two people who support Hillary Clinton do this. I certainly haven't. And then we go on to argue that the lesser evil is still, in this case, the only good you can do. And now I bring you Andrew Sullivan. So I'm here with Andrew Sullivan. Andrew, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks, Sam, for having me.
0: Some of our listeners will be aware of our connection, but for those who aren't, you and I have debated each other twice in print, and the first time was about religion well over a decade ago at this point, and the second was about ev- events in Gaza, and both of those exchanges are on my blog so people can find them. But one of the great things about our debates from my point of view is that they were fairly hard hitting. I mean, the, the first one in particular, if I recall, was pretty barbed, or at least I was pretty barbed. And yet, they really became the basis of a friendship. And I mean, you and I don't see each other that, that often. We're not in a in the same city very much. But I certainly consider you a friend. And in my experience, that doesn't happen all that much in public debates. And I, I really it's very valuable to me that our communications, while we started out very far apart on certain issues really were in the aggregate totally civil and and better than civil i mean they really became the basis of, of a real connection which is fantastic
1: i feel exactly the same way sam i've 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 always uh, however i disagree with you i've always respected and enjoyed what you've had to say and i think for someone with religious faith i think that your challenges have been important and certainly not not ones that any believer should shrink from. I think that they're, they're things that we should consider and think about, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. And uh, I've always, you know, I've always detected in you um, an openness to dialogue above everything else. Um, and that's increasingly, as I get older, the more valuable that is. Yeah. So I, I'm grateful, too. And also, I must say, as you know, um, your support for my my what i would call my spiritual development i don't know quite what label you put on it but you you were very helpful for me to understand better what meditation is um and what buddhism uh has to offer even though i'd had some encounter with it before your encouragement and your example has definitely helped my life uh, and i hope helped my thinking process so i'm grateful so yeah, I definitely want to get into that. I I really
0: view this conversation as being in two parts and and there's a connection between them, but I want to talk about why it is becoming so difficult or seemingly so difficult to communicate effectively on important issues. And and the two parts of this conversation, the first is is politics, which, you know, as you know, is about as toxic as it has ever been in our lifetime. And the second I want to talk about you know, what you just alluded to now is just basically what what the internet is doing to us and and this could in some measure explain why our politics have become so toxic and I want to talk about how you stepped away from your online life a while back and and this this article you wrote in New York magazine entitled I used to be a human being which is really a wonderful article which I'll link to on my blog well, let's get into that and spiritual practice and the kind of contemplative, issues you have around you know what the internet is doing to the human mind we'll do that in the second half and let's start with politics maybe just take a moment to describe your political background and and leaning so people know where you're coming from
1: well i um i was i I grew up in england um in the 70s and 80s um and was a, a thatcherite not only was i a thatcherite i I must've been, I was, no, I wasn't must've been, I actually was the only boy in my, my high school in England to have a Reagan 80 button. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I really was, um, a sort of member of the right in good standing in the seventies and eighties and, and to a great extent, the nineties, even though I supported Clinton in 92, um, uh, at a time when it was possible, I think. To be interested in ideas and arguments about free markets, about the sclerosis of the European welfare state, about government ownership of the economy and direction of the economy, and so was kind of recruited as a, a, a an up and coming right wing intellectual, uh, as it were. Mm. Um, I went to Oxford, um, where I. Uh, honed some of those thoughts. Um, but I my, my study at Oxford was in history and French literature. So I wasn't a political major, but I did that in coming to Harvard when I did a PhD in political science at the government department. Um, and my supervisor, of my dissertation was Harvey Mansfield, um, a, a renowned Straussian, uh, still a renowned Straussian. <laughs> Amazingly, uh, he seems to have completely, uh, Avoided um, any sort of aging. He's done some deal with uh, mortality. He's got a painting somewhere. He does have a painting somewhere, but he's he's a real character. Um, and uh, I, but I wrote my dissertation not on Strauss, but on the English uh, political philosopher, also understood to be a critical influence in twentieth-century uh, small C conservatism, Michael Oakeshott. Mm. Uh, and that's my that was my dissertation. Um, so I come from a what I I still regard myself as an Oakeshottian in, in that sense, in as much as to have a suspicion of of government control of uh, too big a state sector, uh, a respect for tradition, for how a society evolves organically, um, for pragmatism in politics, and for skepticism in intellectual life, uh. And my dissertation was actually upon an implicit esoteric religious doctrine in Michael Oakeshott. Um, So that's where I came from. And then uh, going into America, uh, I supported Reagan in 84, supported Bush in 88, um, but supported Clinton in 92 on the grounds that while I do believe that it was important to correct for some of the overreach of the left in the 70s and 80s. My core commitment is to a civilized and uh, open society. And that requires two parties that share in the responsibilities of government and and take turns in power in order to correct the abuses and difficulties and uh, overreach of each other. And so it's important for me as a Small C Conservative. That, for example, the Democratic Party come back to the center and regain power. Mm. This is this is the moment when really my first drift from the right began. The idea that I could support Clinton over Bush and Perot on the grounds that he was more in touch with in ninety two uh, an emerging culture and society that was more diverse, more forward looking, younger, and obviously on the question of gay rights. Uh, uh, at least before he was elected, mm-hmm. <laughs> a relatively hopeful and different position. Um, and so I think I placed myself in that sort of liberal Republican slash conservative Democrat mold. And when I edited The New Republic in, from 91 to 96, I was definitely regarded as a conservative influence on that magazine, even though that magazine was at that point a kind of blend of neoliberalism and neoconservatism. I, I also defended that magazine's core liberal ethos, even though I didn't fully share it, because mm. again, I felt a responsibility to that institution within American politics and culture. Um, so then I went on. Excuse me if I'm going on too long. No. Just to my trajectory. Yeah, yeah. I I, I found Clinton by '96 to be so ethically and morally despicable um, that I actually supported Bob Dole in '96. Uh, on the grounds that I did not be- I, I actually believe that given his conduct in office so far, that it was simply a matter of time before Clinton sabotaged himself and the country, which turned out to be, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, true. Um, in 2000, I was really up in the air. I had a great deal of respect for Al Gore, but I liked at least candidate George W. Bush. I liked the humble foreign policy. I liked the Ah, uh, compassionate conservatism to some extent. I liked the ability to reach out to uh, demographic groups that had not been properly part of the Republican coalition, primarily Latino voters. Um, and thought between a moderate right candidate and a moderate left one, I didn't see a big problem with the moderate right one. It turns mm. out, of course, that I was completely mistaken about that. And in the, I think in the partisan and polarizing moment after 9-11, I kind of went off the deep end Mm. and uh, supported the war and supported Bush, largely out of a horror at what Islamist fundamentalism was threatening against core Western values and the mass murder that they were perpetrating in the name of fundamentalist religion. I'm also, I should say, you know, <laughs> just to fill in people, uh, a fill-in people, Roman Catholic. I still practice, um, and, but grew increasingly concerned with also the trend towards a fundamentalism of a different kind within the Catholic Church under Benedict XVI, uh, and mm-hmm. to some extent, John Paul II. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to give you a brief no, overview. It's, so it's then, but, the, but then I turned against Bush um, and the Republicans because of what I saw as an inability to uh, effectively conduct a war and to effectively realize that they had made a terrible error. For me, the fundamental issue in that conflict was the the use of torture by the United States, uh, which I found to be a step to take us outside of civilizational boundaries. Mm -hmm. And also a period of time where I felt the Constitution was essentially in abeyance And I was so repelled by that, um, that I supported a man. I really didn't like very much John Kerry in 2004 and then came to see Obama as actually what I believed to be the moderate center right president that I'd always wanted, but even more thrillingly, um, able to bring African Americans more fully into that center and into American public life and really found in Obama, um, the kind of politician I really could admire, He's one of the first people to really seize on him and support him, and became really, in my blog anyway, uh, a sort of key part of the Obama coalition, which mm. I continued through 2012. Um, so that's where I am, a mm. sort of Obamacon, as it were, a moderate conservative that actually thought in Obama that we had a moderate conservative president of really unimpeachable character. Considerable moderation, reason, and uh, extraordinary eloquence. Mm. I still think he's an extraordinary figure, and I think we still need him quite badly, especially over the next few months when things could get really scary. And his calm, his ability to hold the country together, I think is one reason why in this incredibly fraught period, uh, his approval ratings are, are where Reagan's were at this point. I think he will be understood, especially if Hillary, obviously, if Hillary wins this election as the, the Reagan, the liberal Reagan, mm. the Reagan of the Democrats. Uh, and the silver lining I see, we can talk about this some more, about the current moment, which otherwise seems to be the darkest cloud I've ever seen in American politics. The small silver lining is that it might be the final repudiation of the most ugly, disgusting, and foul tendency on the American right. Um, In other words, that this might be the true long game when a a president is able to win two elections and then actually get his opposition to recognize their failure and to adjust towards the new mainstream. That's yet to be seen, Mm, but at least that's a small sliver of hope that I have out of this really dystopian electoral landscape that we are now looking at.
0: Yeah. So I have a, an agenda for this part of the conversation that I want to make explicit for our listeners because, you know, I've said many terrible things about Trump on this podcast and I'm I am sure I will say some terrible things today, but this has revealed some very disconcerting things to me about my audience and about just the, the possibilities of communication. The first is that just there's just the fact that there's a significant number of people who follow me, who are Trump supporters, and who are amazed that I'm not one too. And I can only assume that this has something to do with how hard I've been on Islam over the years, but I continually hear from people who claim to have loved my work and to have read my books, but now have lost all respect for me because I'm voting for Hillary Clinton. And, you know, one person just wrote saying, you know, it's it's too bad Hitch died when it should have been you. Right. I mean, so these these communications are very pointed. Uh, yeah. And 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 the most uh, the most annoying thing about that one is you know, honestly the fact that this person is certain that Hitch would have voted for Trump. Right. Now, I mean, we can we can talk about that. I, I've talked about that on the podcast. You know, even with all that Hitch wrote about the Clintons, I think there's absolutely no way he would have voted for Trump. But the problem is that no matter how clearly. I spell out what is wrong with Trump and describe my endorsement of Clinton as the lesser evil, right? I'm accused of being rankly partisan and totally dishonest and of ignoring all that's wrong with Clinton. And this really bothers me because I mean there really is, insofar as I can know my own mind, there is absolutely nothing partisan about my endorsement of Clinton. I could easily imagine a Republican who I would vote for over her. And there's just not much you would have to change about this, you know, generic Republican so as to make me vote for him or her over Clinton. I saw your your most recent appearance on Real Time talking about Clinton and Trump. And you know, given your background and given that you're in touch with with what has been wrong with our system and with, and the way in which the Clintons, in many ways, crystallize what's wrong with our system. It seems that you could be the perfect person to help me try to bridge this gap, because what I want us to do is to talk honestly about what's wrong with the Clintons, to give as sympathetic a view as possible of why people hate them with such passion and why people hate the system of which they are a very clear expression and then make the case why none of that matters in the current election, because people are just missing just how how terrifyingly unqualified Trump is, and on every conceivable level. And they're, they're not only missing it, they're missing how clear this is, right? I mean, it's just, it, this is unmissable. So in any case, you and I are speaking on the morning after the third presidential debate, you know where the evidence of the difference between Clinton and Trump was not in short supply. So just let's let's just start with the issue with the Clinton. I mean, well, so why did you break ranks with Bill Clinton and 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 give me a sympathetic view of why someone would not be happy to see the the Clintons back in the White House? Oh, where do I start,
1: really? I mean, I, I um, they're about the pursuit of power by almost any constitutional means possible. There there's a lack of integrity to both of them, it seems to me. Um, I witnessed this firsthand. I was editor of the New Republic when Clinton first became president. And the New Republic was, under my editorship, actually championed the Clinton candidacy, one of the first. Um, Sidney Blumenthal, may God forgive me, was my (laughs) campaign correspondent in (laughs) 92. And you saw with Sydney when I actually caught him faxing pieces to Hillary in advance of their publication to check that he'd got every single spin right. Again, shows just who these people are. Um, They're operators. They're at the center of a web of, we used to call it clincest, Mm -hmm. of friends and colleagues dedicated to the advancement of each other. They are money grubbers. They are liars. And I, for one, for example, in the early 90s, was one of the first advocates of marriage equality and for military service for gay people and to watch them kill us in that period and treat gay people with complete contempt and then to portray themselves as pioneers of gay civil rights, the sheer chutzpah of these people when they were actually not just against marriage equality mm. they did everything in their power to kill off the movement for marriage equality and i know because i was in my ways one of four people in that movement at the beginning did you ever hear hillary clinton
0: on fresh air with terry gross trying yes. not to admit that her opinion on marriage equality had changed for about 10 10 minutes and getting more and more defensive
1: well that's part of what drives you crazy about them is their refusal to tell the truth, even about themselves, the the constant spinning, the constant refusal to really be accountable. And this also goes to Bill Clinton's history of sexual assault. Hmm. One of the things I'm proudest of at the new Republic was, was running an editorial defending Paula Jones's right to have a say in court. uh, Which was greeted by the democratic left as a act of treason, the way in which honest, alleged feminists were prepared to sacrifice every single principle they ever had to advance this man who was essentially, uh, one of the, you know, one of the most horrendous offenders in dealing with women sexually just staggered me at the time. Um, and Hillary Clinton, of course, in full knowledge of her husband's history of sexual assault and harassment, uh, went to town in defending him and trashing those women. All of that the Trump campaign has re reaired uh, is true. Um, I absolutely believe is true. Actually, w- one question there because I'm
0: not as familiar with the history as I might be. I, sur- I certainly haven't waded through all the the relevant biographies. But many people think that Hillary was legitimately deceived by Bill on many of these points. And certainly, let's say the the, the Lewinsky scandal that she had bought his lie that nothing had happened, and then. And you could sort of see the her reaction to the truth emerging, kind of play that's out in real time between them.
1: I think that's absolutely true with Lewinsky. Okay. It's not true with Jennifer Flowers. It's not true with Paula Jones. It's not true with Juanita Broderick. It's not true with Kathleen Willie. I mean mm-hmm. and others who are beginning to come forward. Um I, I, I think to say that Hillary Clinton was not aware of her husband's a tendency for sexual assault and objectification and Demeaning and degrading treatment of women is 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 really not to do her justice. Mm. She's a she's a she's a grown person. She sat for 60 minutes in '92, brazenly lying about her husband's affair with Jennifer Flowers. Um, almost everyone around her acknowledges this, um, and yet she's stuck with mm. her husband. And not only this, but at the very beginning, this 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 pioneer of feminism decided that her career could only really get off the ground if she married a, uh, an up-and-coming governor and hitched her wagon to his. This is not what Margaret Thatcher did. It's not what Theresa May did. It's not what Angela Merkel did. It's not what many pioneering women in politics have done, which is why I think it sticks in the craw to see her and why so many people have not been able to embrace her as the first potential woman president, however much we might want to see a wom- woman become president. Somehow the wife of a former president who trashed women on the way up and who herself never did the feminist thing and pioneered her own career and her own uh, life in politics is actually not a great feminist icon at all. And always arguing, always arguing that whatever we do, however we behave, we are so much part of the greater good and the Republicans are always so evil that anything we do is justified. And that, of course, is how they have succeeded. Largely because every time the Republicans have opposed them, they've done so on despicable and overreaching grounds. I mean, impeaching Hmm. a president the way they did was such a grotesque overreach. And the way they poured into uh, Bill Clinton's private life was just appalling. And I think the American people decided, no, if we have to pick between this uh, charlatan, philanderer, liar, And these fanatics, then I guess we're going to have to put up with the Clintons. And in some ways, that's the story of their entire career. Um, Mm -hmm. And somehow they've managed to uh, to always do that—to play the lesser of two evils successfully, and in most cases, absolutely rightly. I mean, I I drew the line at the impeachment. I drew, even though I believed that he was a hideous person. I don't think he should have been taken to that. It should have been taken as a vote of censure would have been perfectly acceptable and would have been better for the republicans Hmm. but there again you get the sort of sense that not only do they want to just survive by hook or by crook jettisoning principles trashing the constituencies they're supposed to support they then want to turn around and be regarded as civil rights pioneers for women or for gays and all the rest of it and i'm sorry but i don't buy it Hmm. Uh, i just don't buy it do you think
0: you're being or possibly being too cynical here on a few points so for instance what about the possibility that Hillary stuck by Bill through all of this and and obviously got married in the first place to him, not based on some Machiavellian political scheming, but just this is the person she's in love with. She has accepted his flaws in a way that may hearken back to another generation, you know, madmen style. And she was just all in with him and realized that, In some purely pragmatic and obviously not honest way, since they're on the right side of history on most of these issues, since they have the right goals for the country, this is how the sausage gets made. you got to get on 60 Minutes and lie about this meaningless affair that you don't care about, and you're the wife, you're the one who's supposed to care, or you're the only one who needs to care if, if caring is called for, and... You have to lie because this is going to torpedo your political career and your husband's and it matters because the other side is wrong on issues of consequence for millions of people is there a way to sympathize with her in that moment or is she still a bit of a monster even then
1: of course everybody's a human being and i don't doubt that she did fall in love with bill clinton uh but at the same time i think it would be naive to believe that their marriage was entirely about love. It was also a political partnership. And in which she used that partnership to gain political power in a way that I think was fundamentally illegitimate in the first Clinton administration. You know, we elect one president. We mm. didn't elect two. If we had elected two presidents or a co-president, she would be ineligible to run right now. But she wanted her cake and eat it too. She wants to be, you know, the advocate of a a clean system in 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 government and against campaign finance uh, abuses but there she is making millions of dollars in ways she didn't need to of very many banks of many in- entities and many foreign governments that are just despicable
0: mm.
1: uh you can't there's plenty of ways to excuse what they didn't to justify it. and they provided those excuses and justifications and and in many cases, as I said, I supported Clinton in, in 92. But over the long run, these things do change you. That if you sacrifice your integrity repeatedly, even if every single time for a little bit, it might be in your mind justified, the cumulative effect of this is to render you incapable of taking any principled or moral position um, and be seen to be doing so. People, when they say they don't trust her, is they, they, I think most people have watched closely and they know that yes, she will switch around, she will change, uh, she will be pragmatic around principle in a way that cumulatively gets to be disturbing. Mm. And I think that's the point. Every no politician is, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., you know, they're not, we have to accept that, but there's something particularly sustained and merciless about Mm -hmm. her sacrifice of principles in pursuit of power. And I think to be skeptical about that and also to believe that that kind of figure can never actually reach people and persuade them in moments of, of difficulty or crisis, that they're someone that they can look to, that's someone they can trust. She still doesn't have that. She doesn't have that with the American people. She's still unable, in a crisis, I think, if she were president, and I think she probably will be at this point, to actually sit down and really be the president of all the people in a way, for example, that Barack Obama could and did, however hostile people are to him. He did have that connection. People do actually think of him as having integrity because he actually does have integrity. Mm. Now, he's a hard act to match, and that's why he beat her. But here again, you've been in the White House for two terms uh, as first lady. You've been secretary of state you, you lost, uh, your major attempt to win. What do you do? What you do in her case was to try and prevent any rising star in the democratic party from ever challenging her, holding on so that it's her turn, holding the entire party hostage to her own fortunes, uh, squelching possible, uh, new blood in order to get another term in the center of power. Mm -hmm. And at some point, look, I don't want a saint, but there was something consistent about this. Uh, and it's it's typified, for example, by her, you know, claiming to be an avatar of gay rights while her husband signed the Defense of Marriage Act, doubled the number of people discharged from the military. And then, crucially, um, I'll give you two examples. One ran advertisements in the South touting in 96 his exclusion of gay people from marriage equality. And subsequently, and I'll tell you this, when I went in, I was— testifying in Congress, uh, for the defensive marriage act. And we were ready to go in and make our case that very morning, the Clinton justice department set, put out a completely unnecessary guidance that they believed the defensive marriage act had no, no constitutional problems whatsoever, Mm -hmm. just to kick us in the gut to kill off this movement because it might threaten, they believed their reelection prospects. And I think to be honest, I'd be straightforward. It's the personal experience of this to be personally lied to, to be told as I was personally told by George Stephanopoulos that they would in don't ask, don't tell completely ensure that no one was subsequently fired. And yet they doubled the discharges from the military and did nothing about it. And to sign the Defense of marriage act for Bill Clinton to do that while he's making a mockery of marriage in the white house, at some point You just have to say, there's something about these people. There is something about these people that is not trustworthy. There's something about these people that in the end will defend themselves against any principle. And I admire a certain grittiness in politics. And I I certainly understand why you have to make compromises. There's something about the relentless willingness to -hmm. sacrifice any core principles that they have that has rightly made us, many of us, deeply skeptical of them. I also think, just leave the moral and ethical question, I just don't think she's been that good in public life. I just don't think she's a very good, not just a very good politician, which now even her supporters acknowledge and as a candidate, terribly weak candidate in many respects, but not very good in government. When you ask her, what has she done in 30 years? She doesn't really have a good argument. She has one good argument, I think, which is the s program, which really did give children greater health security health insurance options than they had before, which I think I don't want to dismiss in any way. That's a huge achievement on her part, but that's about it. Mm. She also, by bungling healthcare reform in the first term of the Clinton administration, made health, you know, expanding health insurance of people less likely for another 20 years. As secretary of state, she supported the only ways you can see her actual input. She supported Libyan intervention, which, if you've supported the Iraq war and say you've learned the lessons, which is the best way to think of what she said, although she's took a hell of a long time admitting it uh, and only admitted it when it would help her politically, <laughs> one points out. But then to admit that you did something stupid by deciding that you're going to remove a dictator in a Middle East country without planning for the aftermath and then do it entirely one more time when you're a secretary of state creating chaos in Libya.
0: Right. Although many people have pointed out that there was at least one relevant difference there, which is that that you had a a significant popular uprising calling for intervention in Libya, which you didn't have in Iraq.
1: Well, you did. I mean, the Shia Shia were constantly, and the Kurds were constantly asking for intervention, begging for it. I think even now,
0: America's intervention in Libya is still popular. I mean, it's still, it's like 70% of Libyans think that that it was a good thing.
1: That it is it is a chaotic situation yeah, where no, no. ISIS has gained ground. Um, I think there was bad judgment on her part. And I think it's one of the greatest uh, mistakes. And even now, she is attempting to get us militarily involved in, in Syria. She's learned very little from her own mistakes. Um, and I think, I, I think it's very hard and I think you could see it in the debates for her to actually defend her record, to point yeah. to anything that really, she made a difference that wasn't itself disastrous.
0: Well, there were, there were a couple of great moments last night in the debate that, I mean, she, I, I think you share my view that she just destroyed him last night. I mean, that yeah. was that I was impeccable. But in ways or, or by techniques that also don't recommend her for any kind of award for honesty. I mean, she, so, she, you know, there were... Two moments where I, I was really flabbergasted that, that he let her get away with these moments and and that Chris Wallace did as well. The one where he asked her whether she would give back the 20 or 25 million dollars that the Clinton Foundation had taken from the Saudis and, and that just, he just kept talking there and and didn't give her any space to reply and then she never had to reply to that. And also she didn't really, she didn't address at all his claims about Bill Clinton's sexual indiscretions. But you could see in those moments how compromised she is ethically in that she just she really has to walk on eggshells there. She can't just give a a straightforward defense of what he's pointing to there. And she just has to hope that nobody notices and the topic changes. This
1: This is an election which, weirdly enough, became a core issue of sexual assault, the way men treat women and she's the first woman candidate for <laughs> president and she's barely been able to say a single thing about it
0: yeah it's really excruciating because
1: of her because of her being and she recognizes this utterly morally compromised on the question she's also utterly compromised by telling all sorts of private audiences that she believes in open borders when she's now advocating to fend off trump's attacks that she's actually tough on Border security.
0: Except, do you really think that? Because I've seen that WikiLeaks email, and my reading of that is certainly much closer to what she suggested in the debate, which is she's, I mean, either she was talking about energy and trade and just used the phrase open borders to signify just the free flow of goods and information and electrons, or she was talking in a much more utopian style of, you know, we all want to live in a world where there is open borders and just the free flow of everything. But she was not claiming that she wants unchecked immigration to the
1: to the United States. No, I think that's fair, Sam. I, I think that's a totally fair point you make. Um, And I do think, but again, the rhetoric she's using to a particular group, which she then did everything she could to prevent being aired, precisely because she worried about the discrepancy, at least in the rhetoric between her private rhetoric and her public rhetoric, mm. um, is disconcerting. There is, and the, the rhetoric she gives to the bankers when she's inside and when she's talking about reining them in on the outside, you know, there's only, again, one instance of this might be one thing you can slough up, but this is a this is a lifetime of doing this. And the other thing I would say is that is her offhand remarks when she's caught privately? So, for example, in these fundraisers, these gay fundraisers, by the way, where she, you know, she calls uh, millions of people irredeemable uh, in an election. Now, not only just pragmatically, I think that is stupid, but it's you—the attitude, the condescension, the dismissal of of lots of people, um, even if there are plenty of. People, obviously, in this alt-right Trump movement that are just foul and despicable. But no one's irredeemable. Well, no I, th- one.
0: I think there there are people who are, I mean, just judging from my communications online and in my inbox, I think there are people who are irredeemable for all practical purposes in terms of getting them to understand what's true in the world. I, mean, I was just t- talking to Peter Singer on a previous podcast You know, I hear from people who claim that the Sandy Hook massacre was a hoax engineered by the Obama administration to justify him coming to take our guns.
1: But to say that half of his supporters are in this category which he then had to walk back and she withdrew yeah. and retracted what she said. Half of it. Look, yes, there are irredeemable people in that mix. There are also deplorable people. But to dismiss half of his supporters, that's that's it's certainly you know, not that's pragmatic, 20% yeah. of the country. Um, you see, I think what the, Clint- the Clintons really don't fundamentally believe in the American people. They think the American people cannot really adjust or accept the arguments that they really want to make. Uh, They think they're bigots and racists, uh, Neanderthals that have to be lied to in order to get your way.
0: Don't you think the support for Trump, and and we're going to segue now into talking about Trump, or at least Oh, let's keep
1: bashing the Clintons. Yeah,
0: actually, I want (laughs) to bash the Clintons a little bit more, (laughs) but—
1: I just want to give you—I just want to insist, you know, anybody listening to this, I am passionately in favor of her winning this election, passionately, we're, yeah, we're going to get there. I have no illusions yeah. at all about what a wretched example of the worst kind of corruption in politics. I don't mean, well, not the worst kind, but a kind of low level systemic liberal condescension and arrogance, as well as money-grubbing corruption. That uh, that really is disgusting. I st- I'm, I'm st- still completely, without any qualms, supporting mm-hmm. her for this for this election. <laughs> Believe me, I I would not have led us here if I didn't know
0: we were getting to that punchline because my goal here is not to reduce the likelihood that she's going to be the next president because I I really do feel, and I think you feel as well, that we are witnessing a, a fairly frightening moment in American politics.
1: Not fairly. I think it's the most frightening moment of my adult lifetime.
0: But to take a few more whacks at the lady, when Trump said, are you going to give back the money to the Saudis? the 20 million, I forget if it's 20 million or 25 million, and, and you know the other Gulf states have given a ton of money to the foundation. What do you think she could have said to that had she given a
1: reply? Here's what she should have said, and it's interesting why she didn't. What you can say is, look, yeah, I took $20 million or however many dollars from a disgusting regime, but I saved 11 million lives. Hmm. And you know that's, yes, if you want to really raise big money to help people, who are living and dying with HIV in Africa you'll get it take it from whoever right um and that's the frank answer but to say that you'd have to say the saudis are despicable this is what
0: mystifies me i mean whose vote is she afraid to lose if she speaks more honestly about islam and islamism and the and the spread of jihadism and the, and the saudis role in doing that and the necessity to achieve energy security in light of The Saudis' role. I mean, why? How? Why can't she speak basic human sanity on this point?
1: Because it would give her some political liabilities as president with respect to the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia, which she wants to keep open. She can't characterologically can't take a clear moral stance on these questions and be completely frank. That's what people say when they don't trust her. They can feel there's an obvious answer to this, but she can't do it. Like, for example on border security. She actually if you wanted to go at Trump and say look I'm in favor of tough border security. Uh I believe in that I believe in that. I voted for many things that beefed up the border. I mean this metaphor of the wall is one thing, but yes she did support the wall. Why can't she forthrightly say that? Because hmm. she, she then worries, well that will alienate some Latinos that I have to keep on my side. She couldn't make a distinction in the convention between legal and illegal immigrants. Ah, uh, which is a crucial distinction, one of the things that Trump has been able to use because she doesn't want to offend this constituency. It's always calculation. And it's always caution. Hmm. Uh, and 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 that's 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 what drives you crazy about them after a while. They can't say what they know. They refuse to be that clear about it. And she's worse even than her husband. and 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 it's that constant hedging, that constant leaving, Abandoning any sort of conviction. So, for example, on Obamacare, she could not say, which she should say, what we have to do to make this work is to beef up the individual mandate to make sure more healthy people are brought into this system, and the government's going to have to do that to make this work. Now, she won't do that because that would possibly alienate some people, just as, uh, and so she won't. She hmm. won't doesn't want to alienate the Saudi government. She doesn't want to alienate any supporters, and so we end up in this sort of calculative. Muddle in the middle, where people don't trust her, and my worry is that if you don't trust her now, how are you going to trust her when, when really something goes badly wrong? Well, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I think it's a dangerous. I mean, I, I don't. I, I, I'm. We can talk about this, but I, I, I'm fearful of her presidency in the sense that I'm not sure she has the ballast to hold this country together at a time when it seems to be careening apart.
0: Well, one one thing that's causing it to fly apart is this is the way it seems to me based on my communications with people and just what I read online. We're living in just a totally balkanized epistemology where people Mm -hmm. are getting their information from sources that you just have a kind of the Breitbart universe and the, the New York Times universe and they almost don't share a worldview on any level. Occasionally, some fact will cross the boundary there and remain a fact. But the role that conspiracy theory plays in our world and the way in which it is potentiated at every point by tiny but nevertheless real conspiracies. I mean, you find, you know, like the WikiLeaks emails, in my reading of them thus far is that there's really not much there that is surprising. I mean, I like how did you think the sausage was getting made? And what did you think the private communications in a campaign would look like? Right? I mean, there's not there there are things there that we wish wouldn't be there. We wish people wouldn't operate this way, but there's nothing there that I've seen that is fundamentally shocking or that tells us something we don't know or that is or didn't know or that or that would be disqualifying to her candidacy.
1: No. I agree. What's shocking, however, is that people's private correspondence can be hacked and delivered this way. And yeah. I think and I think, the ability for politics to function at all, for government to function at all, does require some lack of transparency. I, it, it, any organization has to have something that's private yeah, so well, that it can actually function.
0: But that is sort of a point in her favor. Yeah, I think it is. The Trump phenomenon is also a point in her favor. To go back to the comment you made a few minutes ago that that one of the things that is odious about her is that she believes you have to have a public and private conversation, which are distinct because the people can't handle the truth. There's so little appetite or ability for honest reasoning that people will seize upon your words, like the way she was using the phrase open borders in context, as opposed to the way that those words can be made to seem. And you'll never become president or You'll never achieve the office you're seeking because people are stupid and cynical, and the truth will be used against you. So you have to yes, compare focus group everything.
1: With, compare that with Barack Obama. Um he's not that way. Uh, he actually did articulate what he wanted to do in his in his speeches, in his State of the Union addresses. He was very clear about what he tried to do. He was very honest. although we
0: don't have his private email communication from his campaign. So
1: no. Um, but we do know that he had confidence, not in lying to the American people about who he was, what he wanted to do. Um, and he won two elections and he is, you know, ending with an approval rating that's similar to Reagan's. I think the Clintons give up before they even start. And I think they've learned this from being hazed essentially in the, and, and coming of that generation of Democrats who, especially during Reagan and Bush, really believed that the american people did not agree with them and therefore the only way to advance themselves was to do all this stuff on the hush hush i saw this particularly with gay rights where they refused to make strong clear arguments for why this mattered mm. some of us were out there trying to make the substantive arguments believing if we made those substantive arguments the american people would come along and you know what they did they a third of the american people changed their mind over 15 years yeah. Because we didn't at- adhere to this idea that the American people are essentially a bunch of idiots and also bigots that you have to, you have to, in, in order to be, to advance reasonable goals, you have to somehow dissemble because mm. the people can't be trusted. That is where they come from. They come from the view that no one really agrees with them there, they have to do this by stealth. And they have to have one conversation inside the tent and another conversation out. Yeah. Now not that that is that is not what Barack Obama has done or has said. And he's been more successful. But actually,
0: in defense of Clinton or or to impugn Obama as well, he's done it really in the identical way she has on the topic of Islam and jihadism. This lie that Islam is a religion of peace that has nothing to do with terrorism and that ISIS is not Islamic, and I mean this, I've talked about this on the podcast many times, that there certainly is a a rationale for that lie, and it may in fact be true that it is politically prudent or just geopolitically prudent to lie in this way, but it is a lie, and everyone knows it's a lie, and the experience of being lied to on that point, especially in the immediate aftermath of some terrorist atrocity, is so galling. and The
1: difference is that Obama has explained, candidly, why he won't say, for example, radical jihadist terrorism, because he thinks it will make it harder to defeat radical jihadist terrorism. Now, you can agree or disagree with that. right? But he said that.
0: Yeah. That he's, but, but he's simply, just, uh, just as the, Obama's... At, at the 11th Obama's hour, s- yeah, being pushed, I mean, for after years of... I mean, the, he said it in a way, I, mean, I, I found his defense of the way he talks about this, fairly infuriating because it was a really bullying, hectoring, sanctimonious attack on people who just want an honest discussion of the issues. And I think, I mean, I certainly can argue that we would empower the moderate Muslims and the reformers in the Muslim world much more if we just had an honest discussion about
1: the the civil war that's occurring in the Muslim world. I'm with you, Sam. You know I'm with you on this. Uh, I, I do think that the role that you and i have is different than the role of a president running a war yes
0: I, i've certainly um, acknowledged that as well
1: and yeah. there are in in wartime there are some things that you don't want to give the enemy a propaganda advantage and one of the reasons for example i'm for clinton not trump is that i think a, a trump victory would empower jihadist terror in a way that that would be terrifying mm-hmm. and that. And that his then response to that would be incredibly destructive of our constitution and our way of life. Uh, so in some ways, I think, and the fact that she referred to Lincoln in some of these respects, that, 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 that there is a balance, especially in wartime, which is what Lincoln was dealing with. It's what actually any president of this country, insofar as jihadist terrorism is, is in some way has declared war on us and who we are, uh, is going to have to have some wartime cavilling of, of the truth just as happened in the second world war. Uh, there are, there are some things that are allowed in that context. I think now I agree with you frustra- it's frustrating, and I don't think it's actually very helpful, but I think there's a legitimate argument for it. And I think Obama finally did explain uh, it's also true, of course, that just saying these words wasn't, doesn't actually help us develop a strategy, although I do agree with you that it, I think it would help air the real differences between many Muslims and what this disgusting, terroristic, and violent impulse is, um, and ideology is, and religion is.
0: But the, the other problem is that it has, at least from my perspective, given us Trump. Obviously, there are other Reasons as well, but it is one of the main ones that has brought Trump to the very threshold of the Oval Office. Because yes. I mean, I'm hearing it is the most common thing I hear, and I, and again, I, I get a fair amount of this from my my erstwhile readers and and listeners. There are many single issue voters out there, and the mm-hmm. the issue the issue is Islam terrorism immigration, insofar as we're talking about Syrian refugees coming in who are going to be jihadists or Islamists, it's a single issue. These are not people who are worried about Latinos coming to pick our fruit. They're worried about what they see in Europe. I mean, the migrant crisis in Europe is a disaster. I mean, as much as your heart breaks for the people who are coming out of the, the hellhole of Syria, who you would just want to help and who are never going to become jihadists, what is happening? in europe is
1: really horrible for it's horrifying and, and and merkel you know bears a huge amount of responsibility for that um uh and i think for example some of that is precisely why the uk left the eu mm. um was well, left but voted that way um So I agree with you. However, the United States is not Europe. It's not absorbing a million. Um, it's absorbed almost no one. So, I mean, comparatively very few from Syria. Um, we have two vast oceans, but yeah, I do think that not addressing this from a, a really, uh, constructive, clear-minded and positive way does allow someone like Trump to gain credibility because people want to hear someone telling the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Just as it's important that it's true that many people are in this country, especially those without degrees, with are have do have their wages depressed by mass immigration, especially immigration that is not in any way legal or documented, and that's a completely legitimate question. Um, and when he says we're either a country or we're not a country, he's right, and it frustrates me that not addressing those facts. Will lead to extremists and crazy people like Trump being able to secure a foothold, uh, and that's that's deeply deeply concerning.
0: Yeah. So so let's begin to segue into why none of this matters. Given given all her flaws, what do you think Clinton will actually do? You know, with respect to immigration, with respect to Jihadism, which I so, so for you know, my, my argument against the people who whinge at me about Islam and jihadism and, and Clinton's lying about it, my argument is that, that clearly she knows where the jihadists are and she has been prosecuting or has played her part in prosecuting a war against them. If you're a liberal, perhaps to a fault, right? Sounds like you are that sort of liberal, at least on that point. You You think she's too interventionist probably too eager to fly drones over foreign countries, whether acknowledged or not, and you're too eager to bomb jihadists and not think too hard about the possible collateral damage. We could talk a lot about the wisdom or not of intervening in, in the Middle East at this point, but it seems to me that there's no question she understands that we have a problem with jihadism, that securing... Our country against terrorism and against the spread of Islamism is a, a very high priority for any president. And if you wander too far afield here, you get into the you know the conspiracy theories about Huma Abedin and and just how she's just in the tank for the Saudis and the fact that Clinton has taken money from the Saudis and the Qataris and all the rest into the Clinton Foundation will make her. Somehow unable to prosecute the war on terror, I don't find any of that credible.
1: No, I don't either. I mean, precisely because she's such an operator, <laughs> she's perfectly capable of taking money for them and not feeling any moral obligation to uphold them in future. I mean, that's that's who these people are.
0: Yeah, and 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 just I mean, this is a point that I was surprised she didn't make in the debate because she's she's being often slimed and, and and even slimed by Trump himself, this billionaire or or pseudo billionaire for being completely beholden to the billionaires who give her who given her money both for her campaign and for her foundation and yet she's explicitly promised to raise taxes on them why doesn't she say yeah. listen if i'm so such a puppet of the billionaires why can i promise now prior to the election that i'm going to raise taxes on them
1: right the, the good thing about having no principles is she, and no core loyalties is that, is that right. you can, you can do all this. Um, and, uh, but again, she doesn't want to quite advertise that she has no principles or loyalties. So she's again, slightly constraining herself on those, on those issues. Um, but yeah, and, and, and vice versa, if Trump is the real tribune of the plebs, why is he giving all these people a massive tax cut? Um, it, it doesn't make any sense at all.
0: Don't you think there's something a little more sympathetic we can say about her at, at that point though, where she it's not just that she has no principles, it's just that there is I mean to take the foundation as the narrow case. She will take money from even odious people because she actually knows she can do good with it and she and her heart is in the right place insofar as what she wants to get done in the world. I mean, if she if she had all the power, what do you think the world would look like? It would not be a, a world of shocking inequality and children, you know, working, you know, in sweatshops. It would be a world very much like the one you hope to have realized at some point. It's not that her heart's in the wrong place on these issues. And for something like her foundation, yeah, why not take the Saudi money and, and use it to deal with the AIDS epidemic in sub-Saharan Africa?
1: Yeah, in some ways, yeah, no, I agree, uh, and and. The one thing I don't like is the personal money grubbing. Oh, you
0: mean, so just the personal enrichment through speeches. The
1: personal enrichment through speeches to people and organizations and regimes that are really disgusting. Right. You don't have to do that. It doesn't advance any broader social good. It just makes you money.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, and Bill Clinton has been especially egregious there. Do, 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 Do you know the stories of him asking to... Give speeches. I forget which regimes they were, but you know, obviously the wrong ones. You know, with terrible human rights records. He he wanted to give his you know four hundred thousand dollar keynote somewhere, and sent something like three appeals to the State Department to get this okayed, and they kept denying it. Like this is not good. The optics are all wrong here, and he just wouldn't take no for an answer. I mean, just like the next four hundred thousand dollars, even when you've made whatever it was, 48 million in a period of four years on your speeches. It's just, he's just got to grab that, that extra check. I mean, these people have
1: never seen a check they didn't like. No. And it seems as if they, they can't just be well off. They have to be extremely well off. They have to, they have to hobnob with some of the most wealthy individuals in the world. And they want to compete with those people and be in that, that league again. Look, we're all human. I, I'm not. We're not electing saints, but there's something unseemly about their money grubbing and th- their their ability to accept massive conflicts of interest in order to enrich themselves. There is something you know, unseemly about this. I forget the name of the charity, but you remember the that model who
0: was hit in the the Asian tsunami and who's I think lost her boyfriend or fiance, and then she started a charity, I think, for Indonesian relief, you know, tsunami relief. And this got a fair amount of press at one point, and, and they, they held a fundraiser for her charity, and I think it, it raised like a million dollars, and Clinton was the keynote. But then it comes out that he charged $500,000 for his keynote.
1: You, you bet he did. Right. So I mean, I mean <laughs> it would never, out, <laughs> it's like
0: he, he, he's already, he's already, and maybe this money went to the Clinton Foundation, let's say that's the best case scenario. But he's already fantastically wealthy he's ostensibly supporting this charity that's just struggling to be born right and all he has to do is show up and give his speech i'm sure he didn't even have to travel for it and he takes fully half of the money raised that tells me like everything i need to know about him it would never yeah. occur to me to do that i mean when i sp- if i am speaking you know like in a couple of weeks i'm i you know i'm going to speak with richard dawkins at a benefit for the the Center for Inquiry and the Richard Dawkins Foundation, it would never occur to me to ask to be paid to do that. It's like there's something. It's like let's get every last
1: dime, no matter what you you get off these people. And it's it really is. Yeah, there's an there's there's an extremity to them. Yeah. I mean that that, that that takes even if you were to, even if I were to concede the point that ex presidents should be able to um, make a huge amount of money off. Uh, you know, private speaking to private groups, there is, there is simply a a degree with which they are, let's put it, let's put it, you know, they, they are money grubbing, uh, in a way that that really does leave one's jaw open sometimes. I mean, that's, that's all I'm saying. And you look at someone like Jimmy Carter, who, who, who has behaved in such an exemplary fashion, or or even George HW Bush, And I think those things matter in a republic. I think one of the reasons our democracy is in such terrible straits and the reason that people are so cynical about it is because they see these public officials uh, trying to use public office for their own personal enrichment. And that is it may be in any individual case defensible, but collectively and politically, it it, it tarnishes our system. It it adds to the cynicism. Well, the, the, the revolving
0: door that people talk about is obviously corrupting, where you have senators who become lobbyists, who become senators, who become lobbyists. I mean, that opportunism and cronyism and this, is where the, is,
1: this is where populism does gain a foothold, you see. I mean, yeah. you, you I live in Washington, D.C., and it, it. I've lived here for 25 years. And the, the amount of money that has come into this city—I mean, it's, it's great for those of us who live here— um, if if we've already got if we already bought property, which I did twenty five <laughs> years ago, um, but at the same time it just feels like an just a hideous incrustation of low level corruption that that I think has has helped and aided and abetted the kind of populism that Trump has absurdly, of course, harnessed. Yeah. Um, and 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 I do think unless we unless the elites begin to exercise some sense of civic responsibility when i see someone like leslie moonverse for example of cbs saying you know Donald trump may be terrible for america but he's been great for cbs i mean at some level screw you i mean really you're a disgrace are you a are you a citizen or you uh, are you a parasite similarly the way that jeff zucker is only now saying well maybe we shouldn't have opened the spigots and let him have his rallies live on CNN for hours on end, day after day. But it made us a lot of money. I mean, at some level, when people see the elites behaving in this way, they have every reason to despise them. When they see the elites who have, for example, conducted and supported a war that was a disaster, and no one, no one has really been held accountable in any core way for it. When they see the financial elites— Screw up massively, uh, and in such a way that they they plunge millions of people into poverty and economic insecurity for decades, and still demand the same amounts of remuneration. In fact, are earning more now than they did before. At some point, these things, these things will count, and they will destabilize the entire system that we believe in. It, it, Trump is right. The elites in this country deserve a shelling, and. My view is that the only way forward is if elites begin in this country to start treating their responsibilities as members of this republic seriously. They're oh, yeah. citizens, not just money makers. And you know, I wrote a piece about Plato and his his un- analysis of how a tyrant emerges out of democracy. And one of the crucial conditions for Plato is that the ruling elite becomes more interested in money than they do in the survival of their own republic and yeah. And those conditions are absolutely in place. And that's a absolutely classic example where one of the members of the elite with lots of money, says, "I am going to call out the other members of the elite, and I am going to represent you right. and uh, And I am going to expose them." And there's an element in which Trump has exposed the bankruptcy of 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 Republican and democratic neoconservative foreign policy. He's exposed the bankruptcy of a globalist economic policy that has no concern whatsoever for many people in this country who smell the condescension and who rightly are repelled by it. And, and my view is that if the elites don't hear this and don't adjust their own behavior, make some bloody sacrifices, then, uh, then Trump is just the beginning of, uh, of a populist radical movement that threatens the entire country similarly if the elites don't understand the danger that this kind of income inequality will do to a democracy yeah. then they're going to lose that democracy and they're going to lose their free markets i share
0: the view that wealth inequality is a huge problem and when i wrote about it you know sometime around the time of the the financial collapse i was amazed at the the vitriol that i got back in defense of you know no ethical concern at all around wealth inequality i mean just people and, and and this was i'm sure these were not especially wealthy people attacking me there's some there's this very strange religion of the self-made person in in america
1: and where in general general i i'm very sympathetic to that few, but look when that leads to a situation and it's not, it hasn't always happened. There've been many situations in which this hasn't happened in which the ability to earn lots of money has been great for everybody. Mm. But when a combination of globalized economics, uh, the increased, massively increased benefits to people who are smart in this economy, Mm. uh, the, the massive sorting and sifting of the population in which large numbers of able people are moving into super zip codes in which, which we've created this bubble that is essentially exploitative of the rest of the country, then, then you're in real danger of tipping the entire system upside down. I think, I, I mean, this is, I think conservatives of all people, conservatives who want to conserve our free market system and our democratic system need to be more concerned than anybody else about this kind of wealth and income inequality because it will destabilize and delegitimize the entire system. And what we're living in right now is clearly a moment in which the entire system is illegitimate in the views of many Americans. Now, Trump has amped this up to 11 in a way that is utterly irresponsible, reckless, and fact-free. But that, there is a ground for this, that there is a real reason for this resistance um, is is undeniable. And I think we need to get real about that.
0: Yeah, well also, the the way that technology is of necessity dragging us into a future, which could be a a very good future if we play our cards right, where there are jobs that are disappearing that are never coming back and they're not
1: going to be replaced by new jobs. And people know this, they're not fools, they're living they're living in a way that people like you and me are not living, in some ways, on the edge of this abyss. Yeah. They can see their futures disappearing. Um, and I mean, it's ju- not just, this morning,
0: just this morning, Tesla just re- released a video of the next generation of cars. So this is literally a car that's available now, right? That is fully autonomous. So that, I mean, you see this car leave the garage. Drive on side streets, stop at stop signs, avoid pedestrians, recognize red lights versus green lights, drop its occupant off at a, office at Tesla, and then go find an empty parking space. Driverless cars
1: are here, and what they're going to do. When you look at white working class men in this country, so many of them are involved in driving things. Yeah, yeah, it's the most common profession apparently. Yeah, for and, white men and, in this country. And the truth is that people look at the elites and say, "Who's really worried about this?" Who there is really listening to us? Uh, and the truth is almost no one is. I mean, you think, take NAFTA. You know, NAFTA, I support it. And I think in general, it has been a good thing, but that it has had extraordinarily disparate impact in this country, that, that some populations have lost leverage, clout, and, and income because of it is undeniable. And the fact that these Economists didn't really predict that. And if, so far as they did predict it, didn't really take it that seriously. Well, they would have if it were their jobs. and And I think the isolation increasingly of the elites and the the diff distance between them and most people in this country has led people to feel there's no one mm. who can represent their voice there, that no one represents their interests. and And, And I think it's incredibly important that they they hear that this is something that is concerned, which is so that even though you could make an argument for, say, TPP, you you have to acknowledge that politically and socially, this country hasn't, it may be not able to absorb this kind of rapid change, that it may need to slow it down for the sake of our social stability, for the sake of our political integrity. Um, and that's what you're thats what you seeing in, in Britain, for example, where, mm. where Brexit happened, which is a perfectly, in my view, and here you didn't have you, – you'd have a couple of loony demagogues like Boris and uh, a barrage of Nigels. Mm. Um, <laughs> but no, there wasn't a Trump figure. There wasn't. And uh, this was a genuine feel that the, the elites in this country are doing things that, with no regard for their fellow – for many of their fellow citizens let's push Britain into a, an existential crisis at this point. And, and I think it, we ignore those trends at our peril. We have to figure out how to address them. The, the, the paradox is, of course, we don't know how to address this question. You know, they're, they're, We don't currently have an answer to this problem. Well, well, one, to take
0: the point I just raised about the progress of technology, I mean, clearly, at a certain point, once we arrive at the actual end of human drudgery. I mean, when, when you have when you have self-driving cars and not only is there no need for ape-driven cars, you would have to be irresponsible to let an ape drive a car because they're so much <laughs> worse at it, right? It, it'll be illegal to drive your own car. And it should be because right now 30,000 people or 35,000 people die every year reliably because of how bad we are driving cars. So <laughs> at a certain point, the machine's are going to steal jobs that aren't coming back and we have to break this connection this this pseudo ethical connection between work and having a claim on your own survival in society right so the, the idea that if you don't work you shouldn't be able to eat which is where a lot of people you know ironically a lot of the people who would vote for Trump or who will vote for Trump are people who look across the the way at the you know their shiftless neighbor and think if you don't work for it, you don't deserve anything. I don't want any of my tax dollars going to to support your shiftless lifestyle. Well, at a certain point, I mean, I, it's an understandable way of thinking, but at a certain point, we will arrive in a world where, again, if, only if we play our cards right, we will arrive in a world where there is so much wealth and so much automation of boring jobs that that there, there will not be enough productive things to do and we'll be left with just creative and fun things to do. And people will still, still have is, to be
1: paid for that. No, the trouble is that not everybody's capable of, of right. being creative. So,
0: so, that, that, um, so, you, so need, the, you need the a universal basic income or you need something that ju- you need a safety net that gets better and better and better the yes. more wealth gets created.
1: That's, that's actually the best argument for Obamacare, that one of the things you can actually do to help people in the situation is give them healthcare that works, you know, Uh, that's an actual way of making, but the, the deeper problem, Sam, is that work makes people happy. It gives them meaning. It makes them feel productive. It makes them feel as if they, they're worth something. So, so then we need a cultural Renaissance that values
0: that, that very principle of you know, mastering some craft, getting good at it, and doing it, but we have to, ultimately we will have to break the connection between doing that and surviving, because there's, there's no need. I mean, yes. the, the alternative yes. is just wealth inequality of a sort we have never witnessed before.
1: Yes, but that's going to be, certainly within the Protestant work ethic in, of the United States, going to be a huge yeah. cultural and psychological shift that I'm not sure we're capable of achieving. I, I, and you see in these communities around the country, you, first of all, you see a, a, a dropping labor force participation by working age men all over the place. Um, and, uh, working age young men who have nothing to do except go on video games is not a good thing mm-hmm. uh, for the society as a whole. It, it, it decouples also marriage and taking care of kids as something that that you can you can take pride in because you are the provider and again we're talking about people's psyches here we're not talking about simply economics and i worry about this you know I'm, I'm, i also worry about and here we will disagree about the collapse of, of of real religious communities around the country and traditional religion because that did give people mm. meaning and direction just as the nation the idea of the nation gives people meaning and connection and you know mark said religion is the opiate of the people. But you know what? These days, opiates are the opiate of the people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and at some level, unless you have a cultural shift in which people can have meaning in their lives, and have self-worth, that's not going to be simply about surviving, but about something else, then you're gonna have a, a psychological and social problem that's going to, uh, going to get worse and worse. And we're seeing now patterns of behavior and patterns of family life in rural America that that's very closely correlated with some of the more disastrous patterns in, in the past in, in, and coming in the present in, in inner cities in this country. And mm. it, it's, this is a huge problem. I agree. I think a universal basic income is, is probably one way to go, but it's just the beginning. It's not the end of this and it's incredibly hard and no one is really talking about this. And yet people are deeply anxious about it. And I think that's the discrepancy between when you look at this country right now, it's doing really, really well, actually. Certainly if you compare it to any other advanced economy, the United States is the country you would bet on. Mm -hmm. Um, and yet it's, yet it's people are clearly in large numbers of people are deeply unhappy and, and lost and bewildered. And when someone comes along, this is the moment when the, the wannabe tyrant comes along and says, "I will make it all better for you. I will fix it. You don't. You can't fix it yourself. I will do it for you." There's a huge appeal. There's a kind of relief of giving over to someone else who's making, as we know, absurd promises and crazy claims but that's where the appeal comes and we've got to begin as elites to really engage and re-engage these real stresses psychological social as well as economic among so many of our fellow citizens so that they feel that they are part of the same country
0: yeah well i i totally agree with that but now i'm aware that we've spent 90 minutes tear <laughs> tearing down clinton's candidacy Perhaps. Well, let
1: me let me get back to Trump and why he's a particular danger. And yeah. the, it has really less to do with policy than with his core political instincts. Uh, he is a man, or of, even just his core. I mean, like his l- core. Let's let's just talk about Trump the man. Well, the Trump the man is someone who has no understanding of a non-zero sum engagement, and this is, I think, part of his core. That that. And, and liberal democracy and a free market and a free society are absolutely dependent on the notion that we can do things together and you win and I win at the same time. And even if we don't in the particular instance win over someone else, we know that in the long run what we're doing will make all of us better. And so that ability to actually understand a non-zero-sum engagement and how win-win can happen is crucial to the survival of liberal democracy. He has no concept of it. This is why he doesn't understand trade. His only understanding is I win, you lose.
0: Mm.
1: He goes further. And the only way he can be psychically at peace is when he is mastering and dominating another individual. Uh, There's only one way in which a country can exist in the world. And that is by mastering and dominating other, other countries. This psyche that's profoundly at odds with the very character that is required to sustain Western civilization is what is so dangerous about right. him. So, you see that it's a typical democratic institution that people can heckle, stand up and protest a speech. And the proper thing for a democratic politician to say is when the crowd roars disapproval of this disruptor, to say, hold on a minute, this person has a, a right to say, let's give them their moment. Now, if they're disruptive, you can have them taken out. But there's the moment where you say, everybody listen. We live in a free society. This person deserves to have their say. And that's part of the two and fro. you You've seen Obama do it a million mm. times. Every politician. Tony, from No, Trump says this person is disgusting. I would like to punch him in the face. I'd like to see him carried out on a stretcher. Mm. Uh, similarly, if you take the question of a free press, which again, no politician likes, in the moment, they're taking him down or her down, that they're throwing barbs. He regards that function as something disgusting. He, he singles them out in these rounds. These are disgusting, awful, disgusting people. This process is, is wrong. He, doesn't, he actually thinks that satire should be prevented. He wants SNL to be taken off the air mm. because of Les Majesté against him. This is an attitude that's utterly incompatible with a free society. You can see this in his attitudes, again, to women. It's important, and and, and you can see it, the only interaction is one in which he controls and owns and dominates a woman, not that he treats that person as an equal. He can't because that would mean he's, he is psychologically incredibly disturbed when he has to deal with people as equals. He just can't. That's why he has no
0: friends. He's obviously, I mean, he, he really does present a kind of clinical case study and at least a few problems. I mean, he's obviously a narcissist, again, in the clinical sense. I mean, the way he reacts to slights against him, his character or it's just, it, it is, it's pathological. It's not, yeah. it's not just bad style. It's not just unpresidential. It is, he cannot resist his impulse to do what is obviously not in his best interest, and
1: would certainly not be in the interest of the country. There's also a, a real psychological panic he has. This will probably rub you off the wrong way, but he's, he's a pagan. He has no conception that the weak have any status mm. in our society. He only understands strength. Now, if you think of, you know, think of Christianity as I would in its, in its best sense, its core sense— you know, the, one of the core insights of Jesus, one of the most counterintuitive insights of Jesus was that if someone hits you on the one cheek, turn around and offer him the other. If someone does something wrong to you, be good to him. If someone does something to you horribly a thousand times, let them do it again. And Trump's position is if someone gives you the slightest insult, you have to hit back a thousand times more. He's not just not Christian, as is clearly the case. He's anti-Christian. I mean, he is he's a he's he's like something out of Game of Thrones. Mm. He he has no capacity. That's why he has no compunction in mocking the weak. I mean, I don't know about you, Sam, but I've never, never seen someone in my entire life. I've never been around someone who's seen someone disabled and openly mocks them for their disability. It, well, isn't the Trump crowd's
0: defense of that is that he mocks people that way in general, so it wasn't actually specifically targeting this disabled reporter?
1: Yes. But nonetheless, let's say you you mock all sorts of people. There is a distinction between mocking people who are powerful, which is a completely legitimate thing, and mocking people for idiocy, but mocking people for vulnerabilities that they cannot change. He's so obviously a bully.
0: And the fact that his bullying plays well to so many millions of people is, is
1: really disturbing because... Then there's also a profound recklessness about the man. His narcissism is so great that if challenged, he, doesn't, he, he, he will bring anything down around him. He has no loyalty mm. to the system or any institutions outside of himself. And you see this in his financial dealings too. The, 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 the constant lying, the stiffing of people, the tearing up of contracts, the treatment of simple obligations to one's fellow human beings... That have to instantly be sacrificed, and then the ability, for example, to get into such amazing debt through such reckless spending, hmm. and then to be in such debt that he himself is too big to fail, and the banks have to bail him out, and then to treat that as a success afterwards. I mean, this is this is pathological. I mean, this is a man. This is a man also utterly out of control. It's it, it's something really bizarre about the impulse to get back control, or take back control, as Brexit had, or control your borders, or control the society, or control these forces, to hand over power to someone who has no control over himself. Uh, We've never seen this. I mean, he is such an outlier in terms of human behavior. He's he's
0: an outlier in a way that I've spoken about before on the podcast, and I I just want to talk about it a little bit more, because Not that many people talk about what is so strange about his speech, and there are very few people who find it as disturbing as I do, but I want to just bounce some of this off you because, I mean, this is actually what I find most disturbing about him. So we've, we've talked about how all politicians lie and how, and I actually think that they should pay much more of a price for this than they do, but there's something about Trump's lies that are of a totally different character. And I mean, so to take one example, I recall from, I think it was the second debate where Anderson Cooper brought up the his tweeting about the sex tape for the pageant contestant that doesn't exist. Like he, you know, he tweeted out, you know, go find her sex tape. And Trump said, didn't happen, right? His, he just said, didn't happen. Now, there's not a person on either side of the aisle. I mean, there's not a person in Trump's camp who... Didn't know about this tweet, right? I mean, he, it absolutely right. happened. That that part was not disputable, right? He tweeted, "Go look for the sex tape," and yet he said,
1: "Didn't happen." I didn't right? do it, right? Well, last night when they, when it was brought up that he had mocked the looks of the women that he would assaulted, right. right, right, yeah, did, and, and then false, said, yeah. "Didn't didn't do that." Yeah, I didn't do that. And at some point, you realize that the people watching it, even his supporters, must know, must know, right? that he's denying in front of millions of people something that we know we can prove to be true. I mean but that's not a lie.
0: I mean it's not even a lie. That's the thing. No. There's, there's something so there's something so childish about this that is that is terrifying. It's a it's also a big lie. I mean it's such a massive lie. Yeah, but it's but it, it, it's I just want to get at what's behind this lie because it is a it's either a total unawareness that you're in dialogue with other sentient creatures that, who have like a, you know, who have memories and who have logical expectations, or it is a, just a total shamelessness. Because what you're doing is you are totally disregarding what is inevitably going to be going on in the minds of the people you're talking to. They, they all saw the tweet. How can you say it didn't happen?
1: Because there is only, I think in his mind, there's only, are you with me or against me? There's no other paradigm in which he understands reality. So so he's demand, he's demanding in the way that someone like Hitler demanded or that Mussolini demanded mm-hmm. that you, you actually, you know it's a lie, but you support him anyway. Right. That's right. the key thing. Yeah. And that you willingly see this as an act of power. Not, as, not in any way related to truth or reality. And that's what you're worshiping. You're worshiping someone's mastery over yourself, and you're feeling a kind of relief and release in, in supporting somebody who can make this life, who, can, who is telling you, I will create reality for you.
0: I think you're giving him too much credit <laughs> in, in terms of any of that being thought out. I think he really is much more of a child than that, he's not Goebbels. He's not somebody who has thought this through, and is calibrating his speech to the the moral sentiments and and panic of his audience. He is someone who can't do other than he's doing. I mean, so this there's the the lion is one thing, but the this is what I have commented about before on my podcast. But there, there's something about the vacuousness of his speech, the fact that he can say something three times and it was meaningless the first time right what well, like like he, like the, the lack of information content when he begins talking but he'll say something like and this i guess this is also a, a lie what well, he'll he'll say something like he said this in in, in the last two debates he, when his sexual assaults and indiscretions were brought up his response is Nobody respects women more than I do. Nobody, right?
1: That <laughs> I did actually get a round of laughter last night. I'm happy to say. <laughs> but but uh, I mean, it's what only... What does he think he's doing there? It's like so. So I mean, just on his face. Well, it's interesting it is... here, Sam, to go back to the Clinton lies. Let, let's let's because here we right. we do have two liars, but yeah. But the word liar doesn't capture the difference here, right? <laughs> um, No. They're, <laughs> they're, there's an obviously self-serving Machiavellian way in which we lie to 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 cover our ass and to protect ourselves and to get through a situation. Um We all do that, whether we like to admit it or not, we're not all saints. We, this is a very human thing. this is This is a different level of 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 asserting that reality has to reality itself has to be under my mastery. that's That's what I get from it. that that he has to always be in control. And so if reality is telling him he's not, then he has to simply be able to deny the reality and he has to I
0: also just think it's stupidity. I think I think he's actually not very smart. The problem is he he can't deal with the cognitive overhead required to actually lie successfully. I mean, I think he he lies about everything. And so some of his lies are successful. But in these he's cases, he, when he's he, I, when he's in extremis, he can't do the arithmetic to figure out how can I push back against this charge that I don't want to admit to in a way that will be credible. And it won't obviously be a lie, right? So he, he just can't do the math. But the, I mean, the other thing about his speech that, and this isn't really narrowly focused on lying, it's just, it's the information poverty of it. I view someone's speech as, it's almost like one of those 3D tours you have of a house or of a hotel room or, you know, of a conference center where you get online and you want to see what this place looks like. And you can move around in the space, you can turn around, you can see basically everything. That's what a person's speech is like you see basically what's in the space of their mind. You see what's connected to what. You see what's not there. And given the way he speaks, we know a tremendous amount about his mind, and there's very little in there, right? Has has he ever read a book? I, 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 I would bet he has not read a book in the last 30 years. He cannot be a reader, given the way he talks. And we can be absolutely sure he knows almost nothing that's relevant to being the president of the united states and yet obviously 40% of the the american electorate doesn't seem to care about that
1: no again and one has to explain this somehow right and i do think i do think it's 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 the classic route of support for dictatorships you know to surrender one's own entire possibility of self-government and And thinking about reality for yourself to this, this person's will to power. Um, and it's, it's, it's staggering. By the way, I mean, I, I I saw last night that if you go back to 2012, after the election of 2012, he said it was fixed. It was rigged, Mm. that the whole thing was a sham, that we should have a revolution. Given the way that he has been, he will do that, Sam. We've
0: got to figure this out. You take the moment—the moment in the debate last night where, obviously, the Trump people think this is being blown entirely out of proportion. The moment where he said he wouldn't necessarily concede his defeat, or he'd ha- he'll, he'll keep us in suspense. He has to—he'll have to see at the time. And they're drawing a, a an invidious comparison between that and what Gore did in contesting the election with the Supreme Court. I mean, what is so different here, and I don't know if we want to talk about the details of what Gore did, but what is so different here is that for months, Trump has been stoking the mob with fears about the illegitimacy of our electoral process based on nothing, right? Based on nothing but conspiracy theories. And he's preparing his followers to react badly and even violently to defeat. So for him to stand on that stage last night and say, you know, I don't know if I'm going to accept. I'll have to see at the time. That was just a, a Chavez-level,
1: undemocratic moment. He hates democracy. It means that he sometimes will have to lose. There's a reason he likes Putin, because he the only way he conceive, can conceive of democracy is the way Putin conceives of the democracy, as a completely Potemkin thing that simply empowers him, uh, and in which he's in control. That's That's why he likes Putin. Because he wants to be Putin, and it's the only way of governing that he truly understands. Some people are going to immediately
0: recoil at that claim. Obviously, comparisons to to him and between him and Hitler, or
1: or even a lesser figure. I think figure. the Hitler comparison is absolutely on. I really do. I, I know that it's been at this point been completely devalued, and it's one reason we should never have cried wolf before. Right. But I don't think I, I. I'm thinking of a contemporary anal- analogy mm. in which someone is running in a democracy. On the principle that the democracy itself must be is so corrupt it must be undone or renewed by a single cult leader figure. This is very Weimar. Yeah. It's extremely Weimar. He's remember, he has now said that he said and argued and still has not recant well, really recanted, that the president, the current president, should never was illegitimate because he was not a citizen he said in advance now that Hillary Clinton should not have been allowed to run for president because she's allegedly part of a criminal conspiracy so there is no none of these institutions have any legitimacy for him none of them let's
0: just take a second to try to rehabilitate the comparison to Hitler because you know again you you have lost the argument famously the moment you invoke yeah. Hitler or the Nazis but it is worth reflecting on how consistently Hitler was underestimated. I mean, he was a he was treated the way most of us have been treating Trump as a buffoon, as a clown, as somebody who couldn't do much damage because he's obviously the forces of reason are going to prevail at the end of the day in the face of this kind of guy.
1: They made fun of the way he looked. They made fun of his hair. (laughs) Look at look at Trump. He's a ridiculous figure. I mean, by any stretch of the imagination, from the, from the stupid orange to the <laughs> tan the to the, to the ridiculous absurd hair, to all of this, he's an absolute clown. But people forget that's what everybody said about Hitler. It's what everybody said about Mussolini, and they do look ridiculous. Chaplin made a movie making fun of him as a complete absurd character. But if you campaign actively, if you whip up, especially if you're touching these racial and and in in-group, out-group feelings, and when you have consistently argued that the entire system is itself illegitimate, and then you get to power. And you get to power not because you want Hitler's Hitler's ceiling was thirty-seven percent. But mm. the conservative traditional forces thought he could be used. They liked the support that his his followers that his followers brought into the broad right-wing movement hindenburg thought he could be manipulated made a figurehead they didn't take him seriously well that that is what has been so irresponsible about the rest
0: of the republican establishment the way they have enabled him and i mean just to see the the appeasement I mean, it's it's, appeasement. Just, it's, it's, it's beyond dis, it's beyond disgraceful i mean you you think that their their egos wouldn't allow for this kind of this lickspittle approach to his ascent, but when you look at people like Paul Ryan and I mean Ted Cruz going going against him, and then now you know working the phone banks for him, I mean it's just it's incredible behavior. Where you have someone like Mitt Romney, who's a standout now, it's like the one guy with a spine gives a speech. I don't know when it was, maybe eight months ago, saying this guy is totally unqualified to be president. I mean Mitt Romney looks like a saint at this point.
1: They're all Hindenburgs at this point, and they're terrified. The reason they're not taking him on even now is because they're terrified that their own voters are attached to him. I mean, you look at his economics, okay? free trade uh, and the debt. These are things that the Republican hardcore caucus, a hundred the the Freedom Caucus, the top a hundred right wing people who had 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 ideological litmus tests and purity up the wazoo. This man has completely destroyed any of their economic and let alone their debt fixation. Mm. But they none of them, in fact, they all have to support him. Why? Because their own voters are supporting him, and they are terrified that if they turn on him, the voters will turn on them. And once you see that moment when they're too frightened of their followers to act, then you realize how terrifying this would be were he to win, because were he to win, almost certainly the House and the Senate would be with him. Almost certainly then he would be able to shape the Supreme Court. There would be no institutional resistance except the Republican Party itself, which has shown itself to be incapable of resisting. So that is where this is deeply dangerous. And and let me, let me point out, I just want to, Put this scenario out there because I think it it hasn't been put out there before. And we are at war. Uh, And the war uh, could get worse. In fact, his very election, I think, would provoke uh, a wave of, of jihadist terrorism. Now, what would his response to that be? I think there's no question that the Constitution as we've known it would be in tatters overnight. This is a man who has advocated, openly advocated the torture of of prisoners of war. He's openly advocated the mass murder of civilians. He's he's advocated the killing of the families of terrorists.
0: Yeah. But but what's confusing about this for, for his supporters is he's also advocated an isolationism that makes Hillary look like the warmonger. Right? He's right. he's insisted that he was against the Iraq war, even though that's at best ambiguous. But He's advocated a retreat from the world. I mean, basically, he just wants to build a wall and hunker down, if you take him in at least most of his moods. And many of the people who support him and and who supported Sanders, frankly, this is music to their ears. We don't need to be the world's cop. We don't need to be in the Middle East. Those people are barbarians who are never going to understand that democracy is a good thing. Let's just make our country great again right that's the promise except he's
1: not consistent on that because no, he wants not. to destroy ISIS yeah, by in, which he means in 5 minutes yeah presumably yeah presumably a a a putin level bombing campaign or or maybe a nuclear one why can't we use our nukes we've got them shouldn't we be using them what this does and again what you have to understand we always project from our current situation and think things continue as they do no these kind of movements are uh, seize upon events the events change our reality and the emotions that they can be that can be that can be summoned up and manipulated in these processes the mass emotions especially when we have no elite controlling media anymore when it's completely free for our zone um is incredibly dangerous i mean here's another thing i would point out you know there was a story about business leaders who don't support trump in the new york times a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. And none of them would go on the record. Why? Because they all fe- feared personal retribution. And we all know it. Just incredibly craven. That, well, it's craven. On the other hand, it also, it's also clear that he would do that. I mean, he's yeah. talked about the presidency as someone who call up the head of a company. I mean, he, he, he would do the equivalent of bills of attainder on individuals and dissenters. He's threatened... The owner of the Washington Post with using uh the antitrust regulations to go after him if the Washington Post opposes him mm. I mean these are this is this is completely dictatorial behavior it has nothing to do with a free society
0: so so just to to put a fine point on this because given all of the heinous things we have said about the Clintons and Hillary in particular, why does it matter that she be in charge as opposed to him? I mean, when you would just imagine going forward in dealing with Russia or China or the problem of jihadism or anything else, any other challenge we're going to face, why do you feel that there really is a difference here worth caring about? Because many people think that they're, they're both liars. They both, you know, her husband's a rapist, he's a rapist, or, you know, they're both tra- at the very least trailing accusations of rape. There's
1: ugliness on both sides. Because he uniquely threatens our entire political system from within. And he uniquely threatens global stability in a way that no president, no candidate for presidency, president president has ever done in this country. Just, just because we haven't been here before, there's this amazing complacency Mm. about what can happen in a democracy. And if you've read history and you, and you see this happening, it is textbook for how democracies perish. It is, it is, incredibly dangerous, a level that completely outside any previous candidate for the presidency, uh, outside anything in American history short of the 1860s. But spell that out a little more. It's outside any precedent with respect to- To com- the basic rules of liberal democracy, the basic core constructing ideas that make us the West but, I mean, it's, it's, it's outside the pre-
0: any precedent in terms of his disrespect for the institutions and his complete unawareness of, of what's going on in the world. I mean, he's, he's an ignoramus and a narcissistic bully who just wants to crash through every impediment he finds, and many of those impediments are
1: our democratic system. Yes. And we've seen, for example, that this is so powerful in him that he will continue to do this, even though it sabotages himself. Yeah. So a man, if he would be president, we would be the people he would be sabotaging. Our society would be what he would be casting asunder. We would be yanked to and fro towards escalating conflict internally and internationally in a way that we've never been before. This country would be torn apart. There would be violence in the streets. So now, but what do you do with the,
0: the objection, which I have now heard many times, that you're giving the role of the presidency way too much weight? I mean, if you think that he could do anything of the sort you have just described, you don't understand the checks and balances in our government.
1: What checks and balances? I mean, as I said before, you, have a, you would have a Republican Senate and House and a, and a, and a stacked Supreme Court. When you look at what the executive has developed into, into this country, in, including under Obama, the powers that it has assumed, the fact that the Congress itself seems incapable of functioning, to be actually passing laws independently of a president, to see exactly how this system has devolved out of being a republic into being something like an empire. He is our Caligula figure, but a Caligula with nuclear weapons. I, I I I can't. I I've been I've been unable to sleep this past year. I've had waves of anxiety about this. People who do not take this threat seriously are deluding themselves. It's that grave. I know I sound hysterical about this, but for God's sake, he's telling us all this. We've seen. There's no doubt. The thing that's terrifying
0: for me about our system, you know, I'm speaking as one who's now reasonably confident that that Clinton will be president. So that we won't actually have to live with the consequences of this historic mistake that at least forty percent of Americans seem to want to make. But just imagine if he were a better candidate. If he were, if he, if he had the same complete absence of moral core, but he were actually smart, articulate, aware of how to lie. If he were as, as attractive to intelligent people as you know, someone like Obama was and yet still had all the wrong instincts but could just cover for them
1: in the process of campaigning, he would be president. There's no question. Yeah, except I think, Sam, that that, the part of his appeal is his his craziness. Um, And it would be very hard for a sane person within our broad democratic system to be saying any of the things that he's saying. Including, I won't respect the results of the election. Mm. I mean, I don't think there's a kind of gentler Trump out there. I think it it's a package. Um, I don't, for example, I had no no fear that Mitt Romney would behave like this if he were to get into office. and And to be perfectly honest, I have no I would have nothing like these qualms if Ted Cruz were to be President of the United States, so
0: that brings up a, another topic which we haven't touched. But one thing that Trump has done strangely surprisingly and in some ways happily from my point of view is he's either undercut or just revealed the the unimportance of fundamentalist religion in our politics at this point i mean he's because he's not he can't even credibly fake being a christian
1: <laughs> mercifully it's the yeah. one thing he hasn't been able to do you know, to his credit right um but i mean so it's like well, what do you
0: make of that well, here's, the,
1: silver, here's another silver dissecting lining dissecting out I'm,
0: religion from our politics
1: well what is what is, what i think we i mean i think we're going to see a fascinating evolution on the evangelical in the evangelical world a generational split but what trump has shown actually is exposed in a way that i never thought would be this boldly exposed the utter cynicism of those who allegedly are christians mm-hmm. um you know when it becomes purely transactional when you are electing a self-evident pagan to enforce and to make sure that laws are passed to defend your particular fundamentalist view of certain policy proposals. And you've basically sacrificed any credibility and any moral integrity you ever had. And this is also blindingly obvious to anybody under the age of 40 who has, who is a part of the evangelical world. And certainly anybody who isn't white and who Mm -hmm. is part of the evangelical world, which people forget is quite a significant proportion. In other words, this could be, I mean, my hope is that Obama's long game has been to so enrage, he's like a poultice that has brought all the pus to the surface to drive these people so crazy that they will jump off the cliff. There is a hope, and, and, and I may be delusional here, but it's certainly a hope we have to, <laughs> the audacity of hope, that he will have so exposed the bankruptcy of 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 fundamentalist Christianist politics, that it will die, mm. and that Christianity, as it exists uh, and as should exist in in the private sphere, in helping in in generating important social movements, in 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 helping the poor, in in protecting the weak, in welcoming the stranger, will actually begin to have a rebirth out of this awful, corrupting and cynical period. Mm -hmm. Um, and you see that at Liberty university, you see that where I talk to younger evangelicals, you have seen people like Russell Moore, you know, people who have stood up against him within that faith community and they're very important. Um, uh, and he may have just revealed in a way that no one else could have how bankrupt and disgusting these people are, what traitors they are to what they purportedly believe themselves. Mm. And to be a Christian isn't, you can't, you cannot be a transactional, amoral person and still be a Christian by any understanding of what Christianity is. I know plenty of people have, I'm not saying they haven't, but this exposes it in such an incredible way.
0: It's amazing to see people like Ralph Reed talk about Uh, him as, I've seen Ralph Reed talk about this in public, but I also actually ran into, Ralph at a at a conference and spoke to him face to face about this and it's it's the same story it he just goes to the move of you know it's not for me to judge what's in, what's in another man's heart you know i can't judge another man's faith and you know if he if he says he's a christian he's a christian and you know if he if he wants to lecture me
1: about corinthians 2 I'm going to just he's give him the benefit of the doubt. He's never asked God for forgiveness. Of course, he hasn't. <laughs> you know, uh, but if you haven't asked God for forgiveness, you, you're just not. You're just sorry. You can believe what someone's telling you about their heart. They're being very open and candid about it. They it, don't give a damn about this, and every single thing they support is antithetical to any core Christian thought. Uh, and they're still supporting him. So, so
0: but take over. Take me forward. So let's let's assume, which seems reasonably safe at this point, that in 20 days or whatever it is, we wake up in a world where Trump is no longer a candidate and he is not going to be president. What do you think the aftermath will be and what do you think it should be from the point of view of holding people accountable for their their backing him or their, their mere acquiescence to him?
1: Well, the hope
0: is that the
1: loss is so catastrophic that merely self-interest alone will help Republicans to understand that this direction for their party is poison, uh, electorally poison, morally poison, politically poison, that this is the, the, where they have ended up is an absolute dead end at the bottom of a sewer and that there has to be a rebirth. Uh, there has to be a construction of a conservatism, a right of center view that can once again reestablish civility, a respect for tradition and institutions, and can appeal in a constructive, rational way to some of the legitimate issues that the supporters of Trump have aired, the need to get a better handle on illegal immigration, the need to understand that free trade needs uh, needs to be arrested to some extent, at least not to be continued in this accelerating way. Uh, for a while, at least, the, the, the grappling with the econ- fundamental economic insecurities, and and Christianity needs to grapple with its failure, its fundamental failure to provide meaning in people's lives, so that they wouldn't be susceptible to this kind of uh, crypto fascism uh, or this cult of the leader. Uh, and you know, that's my hope. One of the things I hope to do um, is to begin to argue for such a, a a conservatism because unless we rescue that side of the equation, we have two parties. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen to the Republican party. It may be, we may be going through a fundamental realignment, but my suspicion is the realignment will be socioeconomic. It will be around certain other issues such as trade and immigration. It's going to be about nationalism versus global cosmopolitanism or globalism. And to construct that position in a constructive, sane, and moderate way is going to be the challenge to save this country because if they continue this way, at some point, they're going to get elected. Mm. And to some extent, if we can interpret this election, if it ends up that way and pray God it will, as a repudiation, a sign uh, that that in fact, not only not only has this ha- has this particular long-running strain in, in radicalism and populism on the right run aground, it has to be started over. I don't know who's there that can do it. And the paradox is, of course, when parties lose, the most extreme members of them are the ones that always survive because <laughs> because they're the ones only still with the safest seats are in office. Mm. Um, but I think this might be a huge wake-up call, um, not just for the not just for the elite who had that wake up call in 2012 and had an autopsy and saw all this, but may actually sink down. So that you might actually get, for example, my hope, for, ex- for example, is that Fox News might actually shift, might get rid of O'Reilly and Hannity and actually have more Megyn Kelly and and, and Chris mm-hmm. Wallace and Shep Smith and responsible right of center news gathering.
0: Yeah. Well, that, well the role of the role of the media here is really worth thinking about and hopefully there there will be a reckoning because the way we have entertained ourselves into the abyss by just yeah. watching Trump because it's good television and giving him this megaphone I so I, I I wrote a blog post on this a couple of weeks ago and it ends with really what it is just a fantasy but it's 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 a hope that I I don't see why it wouldn't be achievable and it seems like it should just be our our reflexive Reaction to his losing. It's
1: also possible, you know, that the people who have supported him will turn on him.
0: What I'm hoping is
1: is that that they will see that they've been conned. That they've yeah. seen that he actually was never really serious,
0: and that there's something something incredibly dangerous and irresponsible that, that just happened, that nearly happened here. And when the analogy I draw is to O.J. after his acquittal, you know, so I mean O.J. when he got acquitted from two murders that everyone knew he had committed. He just thought he was going to get back on the golf course and, and, you know, call his golfing buddies and, you know, start his life over. But he was an immediate outcast. He was a pariah. And I'm wondering if the media could treat Trump that way. I mean, just actually deprive him of all oxygen so that like his only recourse would be to, you know, start his own website to gather his his irredeemables. The great hope
1: is that he will become a byword, a cautionary tale for what is possible and what is disgusting and dangerous in our society. Mm. It's certainly those who have aided and abetted him need to be, you know, purged. I don't mean that in an aggressive way, but they need to get out the way. They I mean, need to they be ignored. They need to be ignored. But, and, but to some extent, insofar as they have positions of power and still like a, thank God is, is gone. But so should Zucker and movies. These people who aided and abetted this for purely cynical, self-interested reasons, uh, uh, and, and those shameless individuals within the Republican Party, people like Gingrich and Christie and McConnell and and Ryan, uh, need to be exposed uh, and, and removed. But the question is, is there time and space to get reasonable replacements for those people? Or yes. are we going to have to have them themselves acknowledge their accountability and responsibility for this near-death experience of the American experiment? And that's my hope, that we can that this might be such an excrescence in retrospect, once he's lost and done so mm. dramatically, where he may have actually brought down the entire Republican Party with him, uh, that we could start over, and that it might actually be the reset moment for the right. That, that what Obama has said for a long time, he's waiting for the fever to break, this might be the moment the fever is breaking. That's why at this moment of peak fever, it seems so terrifying. But this might be necessary to purge these demons from the right and begin to reconstruct. But that will require from Hillary, and this is what's difficult, an ability to reach out to exactly those people at a time when her own left is gonna be demanding that she'd be even more uh, politically correct um, and even more left-wing than is her impulse to do. She's gonna be in a very tough position and the left i think has to begin to understand their responsibility also for the republic as a whole but look she's got if she has if she gets the house and the senate which is now completely possible unlikely but possible she's going to have 2 years just 2 years to do whatever she wants and the choices she makes uh will be in- interesting not just for the advancement of her own po- political ideology, but for the preservation of this republic. And I also have a feeling that Obama himself, and maybe Romney, are going to have to have a role in helping put this back together again.
0: You know, I, I'm left still with the the sinking feeling that many people listening to us, one, think that our litany of Trump's faults is grossly exaggerated and that he couldn't be that bad. And he is, after all, a very successful businessman or pretends to be. And that we have somehow soft peddled the corrosive effect of having someone like Hillary Clinton with her email scandal and all the rest become president. I don't know what I don't know that we could do a better job than than we've done trying to differentiate their two cases, but I, I, I'm I'm left with the feeling that people still think, oh come on, he's he'd be fine. What the system needs is to be shaken up and he's just the guy to do it and she's just more of the same. He won't shake
1: it up, he'll blow it up. And no one should want to blow up liberal democracy and a free society and global peace. And unless you understand that distinction, uh you're 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 fooling yourselves. I mean, you're seriously fooling yourselves.
0: It's the difference between having an agenda that you're concealing, perhaps to some degree, to get elected, but is actually sane and calculated and well informed, and just being a wrecking ball that is just swinging through the system. It's and, not and, just a
1: wrecking ball, as I say. It's it's about it's about the abolition of self-government. The impulse towards Trump is the impulse towards tyranny and towards giving up your own control of your life for someone else and believing whatever they say and in fact every time they lie and you agree with them and still support them they are you are you are essentially saying that i have given up uh, the project of self-government
0: you could almost understand that if you thought the situation was that dire and you wanted a the right despot in charge well then even that's understandable but in this case we have someone Who says things that are like world-destabilizing assertions of policies like, you know, maybe we'll default on America's debt or renegotiate it. We'll cut a better deal with the entire world, right? Or climate change is a hoax. Or, you know, why can't we use our nukes? We have them. Or, you know, Putin is isn't such a bad guy. He likes me, right? Any one of these things, when you actually drill down on its implications, could virtually wreck the global economy the globe i mean it's just these are bad ideas of thermonuclear proportions so this guy is he's so uninformed that he doesn't even understand the, the implications of his words right and yet this would be the guy who would be making decisions that's that's a different situation than just ceding the reins of power to an authoritarian who's actually really smart, well-informed, wise, and wants to get the things done you want
1: done. The, the platonic definition of a tyrant is one who doesn't control himself either. And, and there's something, at the same time, deeply appealing to that for people who think they've lost control of their own lives. That's my concern. I mean, he is... He is... He would represent, in my mind, the abolition of the American experiment. He is everything the founders feared. He is the figure that the founders constructed the constitution to resist. And if he were to become president, our entire system of government, our entire constitution will be going through a stress test like it hasn't since the 1860s. And not only would be a stress of our entire constitution, the emotions that he would unleash and the fact that there would be resistance, of course, there's going to be resistance. You send people in, you send police force to Deportation force in the country. You, you talk. You talk the way he has about African Americans. You don't think there's going to be resistance? This this country could tip into into civil unrest in a moment. And in that civil unrest, we would have a president whose instinct would be to inflame it, not to calm it. Mm. Who sees in the unrest an opportunity for further advancement of his own objectives and power. Who has no concern for the consequences of his his actions for other people. And you can see that throughout his career, hmm. he ruined so many people's lives, so many people's businesses. He he made people lose fortunes, um, and continue to lie. He has no compunction or sense of responsibility to anybody outside himself. And that is what he would be treating every person in this country and indeed the world like—a complete hostage to this man's lunacy. Uh, and I know I sound extreme. I, I I listen to myself and I'm like, how can I be saying this? I was, like, watching the debate after night and talking to some friends. I'm like, this sounds like I'm in a miniseries, okay? This sounds like I'm in some dystopian mini series, But we are in it. Mm. And we should not think that this is somehow something happening on television or some kind of show. The, the, the idea that he would talk about keeping the suspense till the season finale, which is what he's talking about, this election, is a profoundly irresponsible sentiment. Now, what's going to happen when... Every Republicans committee going to be asked, well, do you think it's rigged? Do you think you should have been elected when you lost your seat? And when their own voters who voted for them believe that's the case, do they know what happens in that situation? He hasn't thought about the consequences of this at all.
0: This is a point I think I, I, I want to end on this point. I mean, and I, I know we have a whole other conversation that I wanted to have with you about your retreat into the wilderness and the peril of our online life. But I, you know, now that we're past the two hour mark, I, I just I, I wanna so I wanna I want to invite you back for some future time where we're going to have that that other conversation. But this is this is a point I want to end on because I think psychologically it's interesting and it's crucial to get past. And it's the sense that you just described that you are you, you can't believe you're saying this. You you sound like you're exaggerating to yourself and yet you can't find a handhold or you know a break to pull to convince yourself that you are exaggerating. and
1: I've really tried, Sam. I've really tried to tell myself, you're crazy, you, you, you're misreading this. It's not as bad as you think it is. I just haven't been able to find any facts but the, or any analysis that, that helps me do
0: that. And I'm, I'm in exactly the same position. I mean, it is the banality of evil. I mean, what Trump has done is he he's put the banality back into the banality of evil. You know, he is he is a comic figure. He is an uninformed one. He's a cute one. You know, he can get a laugh even out of me in in certain moments, despite my better judgment. There's something in the tradition of American buffoonery, just the fact that he has such colossally bad style. I mean, I don't know who it was who said he's got like, you know, bath party chic, right? It's like, this is what you're going to do when you become this wealthy. You're going to cover everything in your life with gold. I mean, it's just like you look at the shots of his apartment. That looked like, you know, Saddam Hussein's palace. And he's comic through and through. And and there's this feeling that, I mean, you, you, you watch this guy and it is difficult to imagine him being at the top of some political movement and some political apparatus that reliably wrecks the American experiment, as you put it, because he does not seem... That's sinister, but his incompetence and his lack of information and his the marriage between his confidence and his incompetence is every bit as sinister as a real mustache twirling evil person who's trying to destroy people's lives.
1: yes, I, 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 you put it beautifully. I mean I, and in some ways, in a in a decadent democracy, isn't that how such a tyrant would emerge? Isn't it through reality television? Isn't it through this fathomless vulgarity in in this this common touch that he has? Isn't that precisely how it would happen if you had to imagine it today? I mean, it's not going to emerge like a classic Hitler with a fascist ideology and a great movement and people wearing uniforms. That's not going to happen anymore. If it had to happen in our culture this is something like how it would occur. And you look at, for example, Sinclair Lewis's uh, novel, uh, it, Can't, it Can't Happen Here in 36. Mm. Who was the emerging fascist leader? It was a businessman. It was somehow that also appealed to uh, certain core American things that, uh, that made us feel comfortable, that could actually win over people who do believe, for example, in the cult of making a lot of money, even if they don't know, understand that, in fact, he was a disastrous businessman, and we don't actually even know whether he's worth anything like what he says he's worth.
0: I've always felt that if if some forensic business journalist actually got the goods on him and revealed that he was exaggerating his wealth by a factor of ten or twenty, I think at one point he claimed to have ten billion, and, and in other cases he, he's been claimed to have five billion. But if he only has you know two hundred or three hundred million dollars and a lot of debt. Do you think revealing that fact would have torpedoed his candidacy, or even then people wouldn't
1: have cared? It is the one thing that he, for example, in that Comedy Central roast of his, he mandated it was the one thing that couldn't he he would not tolerate being made fun of. The notion <laughs> that he wasn't as wealthy as he think as people think he is that is so integral to his psyche. I think it would destroy him.
0: But a lot of people think he he is lying by something like an order of magnitude. There's no way he has the the money. He, I mean, at least one, I don't know who was Mark Cuban. I think it was Mark Cuban who came out. Yeah. Said, There's no way this guy is a real billionaire.
1: Well, the fact that he would, even now, on like 40 years of precedent, <laughs> not release his tax returns, tell you that that's the rosebud. Hmm. That's the thing he can't have exposed, that he's a failure, that he's always been a failure, that in fact, all this stuff is is actually all this, you know, as as Obama said, buying buildings and slapping your name on it to get money. The, the, the only thing he's been good at is trading his celebrity for money. That he's not a businessman at all. And, and also that
0: he wouldn't self, he made a lot of a lot about self-funding his campaign, but he hasn't, he, so, he, he hasn't self-funded so the campaign. Yeah, he's incredibly cheap and he's been desperately raising money. It doesn't, you know, if you had $10 billion or even $5 billion, and you really wanted to win here and differentiating yourself from the money-grubbing, corrupt, business-as-usual politician were important as it is. Why not throw your own billion dollars into this thing? You're going to be president of the United not, States.
1: Why not release your tax returns and yeah. say, look, this is how well I've done and I'm not taking any money. This was, remember, that was part of his appeal in the primaries to say, I don't need these rich people because I got enough money myself. Why would you not actually prove that? Yeah um, and bask in that because it's all a lie. He's, he's this little man behind the curtain, uh, like all these big wannabe tyrants and bullies are. Um, and this is the thing that would unravel him. Uh, if he was actually, if we actually saw the reality that he is, it's the one thing he won't let go of. And that makes it all the more dangerous. He is, he's a mountain of insecurity he's built so many lies to protect what he knows deep down somewhere in his psyche that he really is and he can't handle it i mean that in my mind is also terribly dangerous to elect any human being who's that psychologically fragile hmm. who's clearly psychologically incapable of restraining even impulses that hurt himself to elect that person with real to give him real power not only real power but power to end all life on this planet within yeah. four minutes of saying well, so.
0: That's one thing that's been very sobering which I, I frankly was not aware of the details of, of how a president can initiate a, a nuclear first strike. It's just either you know, the, the, the whole business of, about having the the biscuit always on his person and you know, the, the guy with the bag always you know following him around and that there's really no intermediary and no, no thought process between you know what happens in his brain or her brain and what happens in the silos.
1: All these people that think they can control him have to understand that if he's president, you have to do what he says in the executive branch. He is the executive. He makes the decision. No one else. In the end, it's his decision. And no one can stop it. Uh, There is no cater there that could possibly stop it. And we've seen that no one in this campaign has been able even to get him to prepare for a debate. No one can get to him. (laughs) <laughs>
0: Thankfully. My experience of watching the debate last night was I mean, with all that I don't like about Hillary and the and the list is long and and I, I must mean, share your feelings really across the board about the Clintons, to see her standing there last night well prepared. I mean, like you know, her her line, which obviously is self-serving, the you on know, the one thing standing between you and the apocalypse, basically I think can be taken at face value. I mean, she but for her standing there doing a good job, who knows how fully we are fucked. And so I, I really just <laughs> I, I mean I, I just realized. I mean I just I felt incredible gratitude that she was just she she did as, as good a job as 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 she could have done in that case. And hopefully it's enough.
1: What's also fascinating, Sam, is that here's I want to end on a slightly another silver lining yeah. note. That she herself cannot really be a feminist icon right? But this election, despite her mm. in some ways has become an extraordinary moment in the relation between the two genders in this country. Yeah, And if women elect, women elect, including Republican women, including, you know, uh, uh, by what looks like currently a 20 point margin, the first woman president against a figure who is on almost, I mean, beyond a parody of misogyny, sexism and male privilege, then, then this is a cultural watershed just as powerful as the first black president. Mm. Uh, not, not because Hillary has made it so, but because the women of this country have made it so. And and I, I I know we've been talking entirely about the grimness of this, but there are also signs that, for example, if this could lead to the recreation of a sane conservative party in this country... If it could lead to the empowerment of women in a way they've never felt empowered before, from the bottom up, not because they have a female leader that does it all for them, but because they have decided this will not stand, and that this is a watershed, then that is a moment when American democracy might actually have a moment of 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 great glory in the next uh, few weeks. So we can I think, it's not American to be this, to be this attached to catastrophe. Mm. And I think, that, I think that the hope, my hope is that if, if we get the election result, it looks like we may get, it could be a way, to, there might be a way to turn this around. There might be a way to see in this the beginning of a new kind of America that sees what it nearly did and never, ever goes back there again. Maybe
0: so. And listen, Andrew, it's been great talking to you. I love talking to you.
1: Yeah, this is fun. We went on forever, Sam. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> but I, I insist that at some point you come back and talk about other things. Or if things go sideways on us, and I am recording this podcast from a bunker in a, in a few weeks, yes, you talk about the future of civilization.
1: We'll be in the resistance. Yeah, exactly. And- the idea that you'd leave this country if you were elected is so absurd we have to stay and fight i would relish that chance if if that were to happen um but we have to have balls and stand up to it um i shouldn't say we have yeah. balls <laughs> women women yeah. have been the women have, uh, to to, para, to to paraphrase eric Cartman, um you know women have had the biggest balls in this election so far and i hope i hope they secure the result but also i i just want to thank you for being the person that enabled me to go on that retreat, um, which was a particularly particularly amazing group of people and a particularly wonderful human being at the head of it, Joseph Goldstein. Yeah,
0: yeah. Joseph, for those of you who don't know Joseph, I've done two podcasts with him a while back. There's some very early podcasts, but he runs the Insight Meditation Society, and, and that's where Andrew did his first long, silent, intensive retreat. But there's just too much to talk about, and yeah, and, I know. and your segue into kind of rethinking your online life is, is too interesting. That so, just at some point when after we take a breather, I'd love to have you back and talk about those things because because the problem of what technology and the internet is doing to our minds is is not going away, and and I, I think you've really been a very early intensive user of online life. I mean, you you were one of the the first bloggers, if not the first prominent blogger, and you are one of the first people to very publicly step away from it and, and rethink it. So that's a, a conversation I, that we should have at some point.
1: Yeah, after the emergency is over. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: Well, listen, thanks again, Andrew. And just finally, is there any social media or website that you want people to know about to get what you're doing? Or you're, you're full-time now at, at New York Magazine? At New York
1: Magazine. I'm, I'm writing. I, I, I've i deliberately concentrating on writing long form essays, Mm. um, as a, as a deliberate attempt to, uh, to change the way we're thinking and communicating. But obviously if people want to, to read, uh, my thoughts about what conservatism actually is and why Bush and Trump represented a perversion of it, then the conservative soul is out there on Amazon. Mm. Um, it's my, it was completely ignored by the right when it came out, but I'm very proud of it. It's now 10 years old, but it's it's my attempt to say there is something called conservatism that is actually an important and distinguished and reasonable tradition in Anglo-American political life, and that regaining and re-understanding it is going to be a huge challenge for the next few years. And I I want to dedicate part of my life anyway to trying to, to do that.
0: Okay, well, I will link to that book and also to your New York Mag article that we didn't talk about someday. I'll have you back.
1: All the best. Yeah, Sam, Thank likewise. you so much. Thanks again, Appreciate Andrew. It. Cheers.
0: If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You also get access to advance tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.